Good morning. Good morning. Uh, welcome to City Light. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thankful to be able to open God's Word uh, with you this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, so if you want to open your Bible or your scripture journal. Uh, and those of you that were here last week, I think we started a new tradition, all right? So it's time to loosen up. Let me just clarify for maybe those of you who weren't here. I had gone to a youth camp and preached at a youth camp all week a few weeks ago. And there was this kid sitting in the front row. He was an eighth grader. His name was Ben Say. And every time I would open the Bible, he would scream, let's go! It got everybody pumped up for the Bible. And I thought, what an appropriate way to get ready to read the Bible. So that's what we did last week. And y'all did a great job, all right? And so many people are like, we should just keep doing that. And I said, yes and amen, all right? So y'all ready? You ready to scream in church, all right? This is when we need the children, all right? Adults are too embarrassed. We need children to lead the way. But you're going to have to act like a child, all right? So I'm going to say, let's open the word of God. And you're going to scream, let's go like a crazy person, all right? You ready? Church is, church is supposed to be uncomfortable sometimes. You guys know this, right? Okay. All right. Great. Great, great, great. I'm about to make y'all do it. Wait till I make you pray with somebody next to you, all right? Then you're really, I don't know what to do with that, okay? Yeah, yeah, We're about to go those places, all right? Okay. All right. So ready? Let's open the word of God. Let's go! There we go. All right, all right. That was decent. That was decent. We'll get there. We'll get there. You know, some of y'all been in church too long. Too long to be wild in church. We'll get better. All right. So Mark chapter 14. Now, uh, before we jump into that this morning, I had a few interesting pieces of information. Number one, I was here on Thursday for our prayer night, which, once again, I invite you all to, 6.30. It's awesome. The Lord comes. And uh, uh, we went outside, and many people are my witnesses to this, but Austin Erickson was with me the whole time. And uh, we go outside, and there's some skaters, a bunch of them, skating up and down this ramp. And scooters, they were doing all sorts of stuff. So I talked to them. I was like, hey, what's up? What are y'all, you know, what's going on? Like, And the first day, I think they were like, oh, what, are we doing something wrong? I'm like, no, I don't care. Just what are you you're skating on this ramp. That's super random. And they were like, yeah, man, people come from all over the United States. They were like, this ramp is a little bit famous on YouTube. I was like, what? It's like this big. Like, what are you talking about, you know? And they were like, yeah, bro. And one was from Idaho. One was from California. One was from New York. There was like eight of them. And, uh, and they, they came here, like, to D.C., so they were doing a bunch of stuff, so they weren't just here. But when they came to D.C., one of the things they had to come do was come to this ramp at this church. And I thought, that's the, I have never seen a skater out here before. <laughs> so that seems strange that it would be famous. And I've been here over a year, I've never seen one. And he was like, yeah, look it up on YouTube. So there was this YouTube video of this skater guy, uh, it's called Gospel, and uh, they basically jump off the ramp and then try to do tricks jumping from little roof to little roof. That's the hard part. So you go up this ramp. If you go, everybody, I know when y'all leave the service, y'all are gonna look at it. When you go up this ramp, you jump over the rail and then you land on the one mini roof. You try to do a trick, land on the next mini roof, jump up, do a trick, and then land right next to the playground. I should have brought a video because I have one. It's crazy to watch these guys do this, all right? It was nuts. Once they started doing it, I was like, oh, that does look pretty epic. Uh, I'm like, I don't understand, skater people. If that's you, you're just willing to break your bones. I'm not. I'm not. I like my bones being intact. I'm not going to do that. But they were there. So, number one, uh, the ramp at City Light Church is famous. So, that's cool. Um, but then I, I said, they were like, hey, can we use, do you mind if we stay here and use the ramp? And I was like, let me make you a deal, okay? 
If you and all your buddies sit there and listen to me talk to you for five minutes about Jesus, you can keep using the ramp, you know. He was like, all right, bro, cool, man, you know. Like, he was totally like, you want to do that now? I was like, sure, sure. Now's a great time. It literally felt like a, like a vacation Bible school. They were all sitting in the grass, like with their legs crossed, just listening. Uh, but it was really fun. I mean, the Lord, uh, they seemed attentive. I just shared the gospel with them for five minutes. Uh, we went back out and left them a bunch of water, Bibles, Christian Explored books, tracks. It was like a whole thing right there. I was like, just take whatever. Whatever you'll take out of this. If you take all of it, great. If you take one thing, that's great. Just take it. Uh, some of our interns saw, said that when they saw them leaving, they saw them all walking out with like piles of Bibles in their arms. Uh, and so that was really fun. I was encouraged by that. So just be praying for them if you keep them in mind. Uh, they were all very clearly not Christians because uh, I asked them. But uh, I asked many, they said they were Christian. I said, are you the go to church kind of Christian or the follow Jesus kind of Christian? And they were like, oh, I go to church, yeah, 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 sort of. You know, like, yeah, I'm not, follow Jesus, nah, that's a little too much, a little too much for me. Uh, so be praying for them, they were attentive. Um, and it was a good reminder to me to always be ready, always be ready. I did not come to church expecting that. Uh, and so just be ready, the Lord's going to bring the strangest of opportunities to you sometimes. And also, uh, just be encouraged that you go to a famous church. It's really cool, really cool. Okay, the ramp, all right, and all that. Um, another thing that happened that night, I have to share this as well. So we came and we did Restore. And uh, the person who shared this with me might be watching online or something. They're from Georgia. Anyways, she had, they had been up here visiting. And uh, we really, I mean, Thursday night, it's usually pretty, pretty powerful, pretty strong. And just the Lord was there. And we, we were just really meeting with him and just felt very raw and like the Holy Spirit was moving. And, and uh, it was a really good time together, which is a pretty normal Thursday night. And after that, uh, this lady comes up to me. And she's just like, wow, like I've never, I've hardly ever experienced an environment like this before. And the way she described it, though, is this, and that's what I got a kick out of. She said, I've never seen such sincere faith. The only time I've ever seen such sincere faith is when I've been around recovering addicts. I was like, what? And like, she compared our Thursday night gathering to a group of recovering addicts. I'm like, that's basically what we all are, you know, recovering addicts from sin. Uh, but she was like, no, just the sincerity, the like rawness and vulnerability, I don't, I don't ever see that in church. Uh, and so be encouraged by that. You guys are a bunch of recovering addicts, every single one of you. Uh, and this place is a place for people like that. Uh, but I invite you to Thursday nights. The Lord really works. So um, Mark chapter 14. I'm excited today because we are closing up Mark 14 through 16. We're answering our big question, who is Jesus? Uh, we have today, and then we have two more days to kind of, I mean, two more Sundays to wrap this up. Uh, but we're continuing to answer this question, as we have said. It's the most important question in the world. If this guy split history, he at least deserves eight weeks of your thought. So if you've been around us and trying to answer this question, I'm so grateful that you stuck around. I want to continue to encourage you to use our Christian Explored resources. Remember, every sermon goes with a session in that little red book. That little red book is good for you to use with your friends and family. It's good for you if you are seeking yourself to use for yourself to answer this question, who is Jesus? We have a bunch of copies. Please take as many as you would like. But I want to continue to encourage you to press in. Also to remind you, this isn't just a question that every person who doesn't know Jesus needs to answer, but it's a question that every person who do knows Jesus needs to refine and needs to get more clarity on because all of us have misconceptions about Jesus that we are living according to that are wrong and that are changing the way that we live. We need clarity of sight. 
as I was thinking about this this morning and just praying for clarity, uh, the other day the rain, it was raining real bad. I don't know if y'all, it was like one of those rains where you can't really drive. And I just took Jay to football practice, and as soon as we got there, it was like lightning, thunder, boom, you know, and everything was coming down. So then everybody ran away, you know. It was like, we're not playing football on this. And we, everybody just fled to their cars. We get to the car. We get in the car. We start driving. Uh, and he's like, Dad, should we just sit here for a minute? And, not, and I'm like, no, it's fine. I got this. Come on. I don't need to sit nowhere. I can drive in this, all right? And I have a truck, okay? We're ready for this. So we're driving down the road, and eventually it starts to lighten up, but I still have my windshield wipers going decently fast. And he's like, Dad, why don't you just chill them out? Like, you don't need to keep doing that. And he is the total backseat driver. He tells me, like, where to go, when to do this, what's going on in my car. I'm like, you're nine. You have no idea how to drive a car or where we are going. This doesn't work. Uh, but he's like, Dad, you should stop your windshield wipers. And I was like, well, it's still coming a little bit. And he was like, well, you can see good enough. And then I said, well, why, why be a little blurry when you can see perfectly? Why would you choose to be a little blurry when you could see clearly? And this is what I'm after this morning with Jesus for all of us, is why would you choose to be even a little blurry about who he is? Why would you settle for an okay understanding of Jesus when you could have absolute perfect clarity? This is what we want for every single one of you. For those seeking Jesus and getting to know who he is to make a decision about whether you want to be a go-to-church type of Christian or an actual follow-Jesus type of Christian. You're trying to decide that. Maybe some of you are just trying to live for Jesus, but you're living with a blurry vision of Jesus. And I wonder how many of you don't even know that your vision of Jesus is a little bit blurred and therefore your living for him is not according to clear sight. So my prayer this morning is that we would all be clear that we would see Jesus for who he really is, that the blurriness would go away, and that the sermon itself and the word of God would function like windshield wipers to take away the blurriness and to provide clarity to you. And so we're going to start in Mark chapter 14, verses 60 through 63, because I'm going to try to summarize two chapters. But the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus himself was very clear on who he was. Very clear. Don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus did not think he was God or any of these things. Ridiculous. They don't read the Bible. Mark 14, 60 through 63. First and foremost, Jesus was clear. Let's see it. The high priest stood up. This is after Jesus had been arrested. And he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So everybody's bringing a witness against Jesus. Blah, 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 blah. They're all making lies or exaggerating the truth. They can't find anything wrong with him. So verse 61, they, they do him himself. They ask him himself. But he remained silent. He made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him a very specific question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? It's a very specific question. Are you God in the flesh? Are you the promised Messiah? Are you the Christ, the Son of God, the blessed? And Jesus answered without any hesitation, I am. I am. Not only that, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment. He said, what further witnesses do we need? So Jesus is absolutely clear on who Jesus is. Not a nice guy, not a nice teacher, not a Gandhi-type figure, not your homeboy, not any of that kind of fairy tale images you have in Jesus in your mind. Jesus himself saying about himself, I am the Christ. I am God in the flesh. And not only that, you see me right now as a man in the flesh 
and you have power over me. But let me tell you something. That's only because I'm voluntarily doing that. One day I will come back from the clouds and exert power over you. So Jesus is not messing around, and Jesus is making it super, super clear. It's the first thing you ought to understand. And one of the things I became so convinced and convicted about this is that we need to relate to God according to who he is, not according to what we feel about him or even what he does for us. It's so interesting. I've been reading this book called Passing Down the Faith, and it's basically research about how religious parents of a variety of religions pass down the faith to their children. And that includes Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, whatever. Just how do parents regularly do this? What does it look like? What are trends that we see uh, in religious parenting throughout the world? So they did a bunch of surveys, and they took some of the most religious parents uh, in the United States, and they began to ask them all these different questions. And as I began to read through what's happening in this, I was really struck by something so interesting. One common thing that I noticed was everyone talked about religion as a way to live a good life and be happy. Nobody talked about religion as a response to who God is. It was all about here's how to be happy, here's how to live a good life, here's how to be a good person, but there was no impression that God is there and I have to deal with that. And I wonder for so many of you, is that what your Christianity is about? It's a religion that you think allows you to live a good life, be a good person, but really, it's not about whether God is there or not. And I just kept thinking about how we ought to be dealing with the fact that God is there, he's there, and now I have to deal with it. That's it. That's religion. God is there. And now what do I do? What does he think? What is he like? What am I supposed to do? What does he expect of me? That's the core essence of religion, not how can I live a good life, be a good person. And time and time again, even Christians, even Protestant Christians in this survey, Muslims, Buddhists, all the different things, every single time it was I hope my kid uh, learns to be happy and live a good life as a good person. And there was no idea that there, God is there and I have to deal with it. And I'm trying to learn how to recognize that and to deal with it. God is there. Does he love me? God is there. Is he mad at me? God is there. What does he expect of me? God is there. Is there more than one? God is there. What is he doing right now? God is there. Well, how has he revealed himself to me? God is there. What should I do with that? And I wonder how many of you have made your religion and maybe even your Christianity about trying to be a good person and live a good life. That is not it. The essence of religion is simply to understand God is there. And now what? God is there, I have to deal with him. I can't run away from that, I can't deny it, I can say all day, well, God isn't there. But the Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And you know deep within your heart that this whole place didn't come here by accident, come on, you don't really believe that. And so now to say God is there, God is there, God is there, and I have to deal with that. And even for those of you who identify as Christians and are trying to live according to the Bible, do you live this kind of way? Not what should I be doing to live a better life? How should I practice my religion? But God is there. What does he say? How should I respond to him? Remember even last week we talked about the primary evidence or mark of a gathering of Christians and believers on a Sunday morning or anywhere really is that God is present, that he's there. And now what? Is that how you deal with God? Is that how you go throughout your day? God sees everything that I'm doing. Now what? God knows every thought that I think. Now what? God really cares about how I live my life. Now what? 
And I think we have traded out this idea of religion and we've prioritized it as a way to live a good life, which you can absolutely do without God. But Christianity and religion, Christianity as the religion revolves around the belief that God is. That's simply it. What is Christianity all about? God is there. And how has he revealed himself? In his son, Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Through the word of God. This is the core essence of Christianity. And now, what does Jesus reveal about himself? What is God saying about himself? He sends Jesus into the world, and as we've seen throughout all the book of Mark, Jesus comes to talk about the kingdom of God, to reveal the gospel of God, to talk about who God is, to talk about who he is, to reveal the way. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He goes and he does signs and wonders to reveal his power over sickness and over death. He teaches about the way of God, which includes the wrath and the judgment of God and hell. And throughout his ministry then, you begin to understand, God is there, God loves me, but my sin has separated me from God. That is a problem. Jesus ultimately, now we'll see even this week, came to take care of my sin so that I could be forgiven and now have access to God. So that instead of receiving the wrath of God because of my sin, I can receive the grace of God because of Jesus. This is who Jesus is, and this is why it is so important for you to understand. Because God is there, and you have to deal with it. And so now what? And Jesus says, this is who God is, in the flesh. And so many people are like, I wish God would like write something in the sky or show me something. He did. He literally came down to earth. Why doesn't God reveal himself more? He came as a man like he was right here. We have this whole Bible, the most verifiable historical document in the history of the world to tell us about it. God has revealed himself, but he has revealed himself in his son. He has not revealed himself through Muhammad. He has not revealed himself through Buddha. He has not revealed himself through religious practice. He has not revealed himself through the universe or whatever you want to think about spirituality. He has revealed himself through making the universe. He has not revealed himself through any other way or any other religion. He has revealed himself through Jesus. And if you want to know who God is, you have to know who Jesus is. That's it. It's your only choice. If you want to know who God is, you have to know who Jesus is. But as we saw, most importantly, not only did God reveal himself, but he came to give us grace. This is the word we're focusing on this morning. What does God expect from me? What does God want from me? What is God doing for me? Is he mad at me? Is he happy with me? Does he love me? This is what we begin to understand, that even though God is angry at our sin, and our sin deserves punishment before him, Jesus came to take the punishment for us on the cross, to be raised from the dead, and then to offer us grace that we may have a new relationship with God. And so now I want to deal with this word grace. God is there. He's revealed himself in Jesus. What does he want you to understand this morning? He wants you to understand grace. What is grace? Grace is simply this. Grace is Jesus in my place. What is grace? What is this religious, spiritual, Bible word grace? Grace is Jesus in my place. He got what I deserve, so I get what he deserves. This is how God has ultimately decided to reveal himself, is to be the God who grants grace. How does God give grace? He sends Jesus in my place. What does that mean? That means Jesus gets what I deserve the wrath of God and the punishment for sin so that I can get what he deserves, everlasting life. The Bible says it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus in your place. And for some of you this morning, Jesus wants to take your place for the very first time. That you would believe and trust in him. That your sins would be paid for on the cross. And that through faith in Jesus, he would trade and take your sins on him. And that he would give you what he deserves, eternal life. This is grace. I get what he deserves. So uh, he gets what I deserve, so I can get what he deserves. And those of you who follow Christ consistently ought to consider this day in and day out. Every day, grace is Jesus in my place. He got what I deserve, so I can get what he deserves. And this is what compels you to move forward in mission. So that whole sentence, he got what I deserve, so I can get what he deserves. Grace is Jesus in my place. Now is going to be revealed super clear in the last two chapters. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a few sentences to help you understand this more by what Jesus has done. The kinds of things Jesus became so that you could become what he wants you to become. This last little part of Jesus' life, going towards the cross, being hung on the cross, then dying for us, rising again three days later, and proving to be the Savior of the world, these last few days of his life show us ultimately the meaning of this sentence, that he got what I deserve so I can get what he deserves. So I'm going to read through some. I'm going to do it slowly because I want you to be able to write them down because these are truths you should meditate on. These are things you should consider. And if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand not only that God is there, but that God loves you so unbelievably deeply and he wants you to have a relationship with him so much so that he was willing to endure all the things I'm about to say. So who is Jesus really and what did he do? He is this. He is the one who was betrayed so you could belong. Jesus is the one who was betrayed so you could belong. Betrayed by Judas, betrayed by Peter and all of his disciples. Betrayed by everyone that said, I will never leave you. Jesus was betrayed so that you could belong. He was betrayed so that you could belong, so that you could come in. This was part of the process that was necessary for him, that he would be betrayed. And when Jesus is betrayed, he's doing so, so that you can belong. And you cannot belong in the family of God unless Jesus is first betrayed. You wonder if God is there, if he knows what it feels like to be you. If he understands your pain and your struggle. Well, the answer is yes, because he came down as a man. Have you been betrayed? So has Jesus. Jesus was betrayed so that you could belong. The second one, Jesus is the one who was broken so you could be forgiven. Jesus is the one who was broken so you could be forgiven. As we see in this part of the text is when he teaches us about the Lord's Supper, that his body is broken for us, his blood is poured out for us. How do your sins get forgiven? What do you do with all of your mess? What do you do with all of your sins? Do you try to pray enough, go to church enough? Do you just hope you do enough good things so when you stand before God, he's like, okay, that's cool, I'm good with you. No, how do your sins get forgiven? They only get forgiven by being put on Jesus so much so that it breaks him. You cannot be forgiven unless Jesus is broken. That is the only way. You cannot be forgiven by trying harder, being a good Christian, giving your money away, going to church, doing all the things you're supposed to do, praying five times a day, making pilgrimages. None of these things will forgive you. Your sin has to be paid for. It can't be winked away. God can't just be like, okay, I'm cool with you and not you, cool with you and not you. You did enough good deeds, but you didn't. Your sin has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. So how does that happen? It, it gets dealt with by Jesus on the cross. 
Jesus was broken so you could be forgiven. This is who Jesus is. Jesus was the one who was troubled so you could have peace. This is the story of him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's preparing to go to the cross. And he's so terrified by the prospect of the wrath of God that he asked God for a way out, the Father, and we end up seeing that he's so, so intensely suffering that he sweats drops of blood. I don't think any of you have been troubled to that extent like Jesus has been troubled. You say, does God understand the trouble of my soul? Yes, yes. More so than you could even imagine. Jesus was troubled. Why was Jesus troubled? Why did Jesus do that? So he could give you peace. Jesus was the one who was left alone so you could have a home. Once again, he's betrayed, and this text right here says in verse 50, they all left him and fled. In the hour that he needed the most support is the very hour that he was left all alone. And not only that, but we're going to see he was left alone by God the Father. He was completely and utterly alone. Left alone. Why did he do that? Why would God come and suffer loneliness, suffer betrayal, and be troubled and be left alone? Why? So that you could have a home with him. So that you could never be alone ever again. So that you could have the guarantee of his spirit living in you. So that you could have a family of God, of brothers and sisters. So that you could have an eternal home with him in heaven. Jesus is the one who was innocent, but he took on your punishment. I love this in 1455. It says they couldn't charge him with anything. (laughs) Why? Because he was perfect. He had never sinned against anyone, against God. He had never said anything wrong. He had never done anything wrong. He had never offended or hurt anybody based off his own problems. People were offended, but that was their problem, not his. He had never done anything wrong, and they couldn't even bring a charge against him. He was innocent, perfectly innocent. He deserved nothing but happiness and wholeness. But what did he get? Your punishment. Does that sink in with you? Like, he was innocent, and he took on all your punishment. Like, thank you, Jesus. There was nothing in him that deserved what he got. But he decided because of his love for you to take it on himself. Jesus was perfectly innocent, but he took on your punishment. Jesus was the one who did not defend himself so that he could defend you. 15.5, it says that he didn't even speak up for himself. Jesus is the one who did not defend himself. He says that he could have called angels down from heaven. He could have defended himself even verbally against the lies against him. He did not defend himself. Why? Why did Jesus take the hit? Why did Jesus, though he was innocent, not speak up for himself? Why did Jesus decide to go this way? Why? Because if he did not defend himself, that means he could defend you. Because he let the hit come to him, he could get in the way for you. But if Jesus would have stuck up for himself, brought the angels down, defended his name, said, you can't treat me like this, I'm innocent. If he would have done that, then you and I would be destined to hell forever. Jesus did not defend himself so that he could defend you. I mean, just think about the urge you and I have, especially when we are innocent, to defend ourselves. And Jesus, being perfectly innocent, did not speak up for himself. Why? So he could speak up for you. He did not defend himself. Why? So he could defend you. Jesus is the one who was hurt so you could be healed. 
The worst thing about the cross was the wrath of God coming down upon him. But the second worst thing was obviously the physical punishment and the things he had to endure at the hands of men. Jesus was hurt physically. He was hurt emotionally. He was hurt in every possible way. Why was Jesus hurt? Why did he do that? So you could be healed. How do you get healed? Through the pain of Jesus. Jesus was hurt. And without Jesus being hurt, you cannot be healed. You have to see all of this. Is it in like, oh, it's a good option and I can get another way? No. There is no healing for you if there's no hurt for him. There is no defense for you if there's no non-defense from him. There's punishment for you if he doesn't take it for himself. You would be left without a home if he didn't be left alone. You would not have peace if he was not troubled. You could not be forgiven if he was not broken. You would never belong if he did not be betrayed. Do you understand this is the only way? Let's keep going. He was the one who was forsaken so you could be accepted. And this is the worst one, ultimately, is the forsaken by God the Father himself. Because the Father had to pour out his wrath on the Son. Jesus was forsaken from the relationship that he had with the Father for all of time. Why did he do that? So you could be accepted by the Father. Jesus is the one who was crucified so that you could come alive. Jesus is the one who died so that you could live. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who conquered the grave so that you can be saved. All of these things, the one who was crucified so you could come alive, the one who died so you could live, the one who conquered the grave so you could be saved. Who is Jesus? Well, he's God, and you must deal with him, but he's a God who wants to grant you grace. He gets what you deserve so you can get what he deserves. This is Jesus. This is the God who is making an offering to you, an opportunity to you to believe and trust and follow him. This is the Jesus that many of you have decided to believe and confess and trust, but you're not living according to these wonderful truths about him. You're not living in the grace of God that he has for you. You're living in condemnation. You're living in the pain. You're living in the the problems of all those things. You're not living in this wonderful blessing of who Jesus is for you. And ultimately, I want us to see this, because we cannot reject this offer. It isn't like, well, here's a good deal, take it. Jesus shows us, as the verse we read in the beginning, he is the one who came in humility, but he will come again in victory. Once again, God is there, and you must deal with him. The question now is, are you ready? Are you ready? God is there, you must deal with him. He came in humility, but he will come again in victory. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Are you ready? Have you believed and trusted in him? So now in light of these things, here's the question. What is my response? This is how Jesus has revealed himself. What is my response? Well, the first thing is this. It's simply belief and trust. He triumphs and I trust. He gets the victory. I just get the spoils. He does the work. I join him. I believe and trust in him. He triumphs and I trust. He triumphs and I trust. You don't triumph. You don't triumph the grave. You don't do it. He triumphs. I trust and believe in him, and I get everything that he deserves. He triumphs, and I trust. This is not just how you enter into Christianity. It's how you live every day. Are you living based off the finished work of Jesus, or are you living based off your own work, trying still to please God, trying still to atone for your own sins? You are called now to trust. He leads, you follow. He commands, you obey. He triumphs, you trust. This is the work of Jesus Christ. This is your response. And as we close on this, I want to show you one final picture from a story here. What does it look like to understand who Jesus is and to respond appropriately to him? 
In Mark chapter 14, we see the story of this woman who comes and she anoints Jesus, and I think it gives us the right picture of what does it mean to understand who God is, to understand the grace that God has for you, and then to respond appropriately. I'll put it on the screen. So Mark chapter 14, verse 3. This is moving back up chapter 2. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. Now there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Ultimately, we see that he is the one who deserves all that we have to give. What is the response, the proper response to Jesus? It's everything. What is the proper response to understanding the grace of God? Everything. But here's something you must understand as you pursue this and actually live it out. What is worshipful to you will often look wasteful to others. Look at this. You want to go and be extreme for Jesus? You want to respond appropriately to Jesus? People are going to think you're crazy. Jesus is not asking for a moderate response to him, a careful response to him. She goes and she pours it all out on him. And what do his own disciples say? They're not like, oh, yeah, Jesus is worthy. They're like, what are you doing? You could have given that to the poor. You're wasting everything. What's worshipful to us will often look wasteful to the world. When we actually see who Jesus is and respond, people around you will say that's too much. That's too much. That's too much. I wonder if anybody has told you in your own zeal for Jesus, that's too much. And maybe that calmed you down a little bit. That's too much. That's too much. I love this quote from a commentary I read. It says, the world has never had a problem with religion and moderation. That stuck me. The world has never had a problem with religion and moderation. They wouldn't have been upset with her for giving a little bit to Jesus. They were upset with her for giving the whole thing. And here's something that they misunderstood. They thought the cause or the mission was greater than the person itself. Serving the poor is a wonderful thing, and Jesus says so himself. But you know what's better? Jesus. You know what's more important than serving the poor, as crazy as it may sound to you? Jesus. You know what's more important than being a good person? Jesus. You know what's more important than you practicing your religion? Jesus. It's love for him. And obviously throughout the Bible we see that when you love the poor rightly, you do so as an act of worship. These two things aren't always separated. But when we see who Jesus really is, we respond with an extreme response. He deserves all we have to give. Here's the last thing I want to leave with you as you understand this story right here. Okay, look at this, verse, verse 3. She broke the flask. Okay, you see how much this is. She's, this whole thing, it says, is worth a year's worth of, 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 of pay. So what she's holding in her hand is a year's salary. Not only the perfume or the ointment on the inside, but the jar itself. And some commentators believe that the reason she even has a jar like this, because she's likely a poor woman, 
is because it's been passed down as a family heirloom. So it has an emotional tie. It has sentimental ties. It could take care of her for a whole year. This is significant. Now, here's what you and I do. We take what we have, and we say, okay, here's what we're willing to do. Thank you, Jesus, for the grace of God. Okay. Here's what I have. Thank you. I come to church. I feel Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You're so nice to me. Uh, you know, here's a little bit of my stuff. Here's a little bit of my life. I'm still very, very careful. Because, yes, I believe and I trust and I thank you. Oh, but I'm not willing to break the flask. What did she do? What happens when she breaks the flask? It's over. The flask is done. There's no recuperating it. All the ointment comes out. She can't give him a little bit. And this is what we do with our life when we respond to Jesus. We say, okay, I'll come to church a little bit. I'll try to tithe a little bit of money. I'll try to be a nice person and do, I'll even serve once a month. You know, the church keeps asking me, kids need help down there. I'll keep doing all these little things, you know. I'll just do this little, 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 little. But I'm still holding on because my life is really mine. And I'm thankful for Jesus, but I'm thankful just a little bit. And you know what Jesus is calling you to this morning? It's complete surrender. Jesus deserves everything. And if I had enough space, I would just break the glass because I want you to see that. But I'm not going to do that because I can't clean it all up right now. But this is what Jesus is calling you to. And what is your response? What has been your response to Jesus? You say yes to Jesus, but has it looked like this? You're just giving him a little bit of what you have. But you maintain control. You keep everything that you have to yourself. And when it feels appropriate and convenient to you, you give him a little bit more. But you're still in control of the whole glass. This is my life. Thank you, Jesus. Here's a little bit. This is my life, my money, my resources, my time, my energy, my life. And I'll give you a little bit when it feels right, but I won't break the flask. And what Jesus is calling you to this morning, when you see who he really is, when you see how wonderful he really is, when you understand the grace of God for you, the only proper response is to break the thing and let it all go and surrender everything to him. We can't see who Jesus is and respond with moderation. We can't see who Jesus is and just pour out a little bit more. We can't see who Jesus is and hold anything back. And what I love from Jesus is this. He looks at what she did and he calls it beautiful. I'm sure it was messy. I'm sure it was unexpected. It is not according to what you should normally do. Jesus did not expect this to happen in this moment. Obviously he knows the future, he's understanding, but nobody around him knew anything like this. This just comes and it's messy, it's not according to plan, but it's an act of worship. Jesus looks at it and he doesn't say, oh that's messy, oh you should have given that to the poor. He says, that extreme response to me is beautiful. And this is what Jesus is calling many of you to this morning. Some of you, for the very first time, you need to surrender everything to Jesus. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. If you want to come to Jesus, you have to come giving him everything. You can't accept Jesus and still hold on to all the other stuff in your life. He will not come into your heart like that. He will not be trivialized like that. To come to Jesus is a complete surrender. Take up your cross and follow me. Give everything to me. And that's what he's calling you to this morning. And if God's tugging you on your heart and speaking to you, he's asking you to break the flask, to let go of everything and to follow him. He is worthy of it. 
And so many of you know this Jesus that I speak of. And we've gone through who is Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And you're like, yeah, ho-hum, that's cool. And you respond with little tiny acts of obedience that make you feel better about yourself. But Jesus is talking to you this morning, and he's saying, I want it all. So what are you holding back, and what is he saying to you this morning? He is calling you to break the flask and to surrender everything to him and to respond to Jesus according to who he is. Every response in this room should be extreme. It should be extreme in love. It should be extreme in denial, saying, no, 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 that's not for me. It should be extreme in hate. It should be extreme. If anybody responds to Jesus in moderation, then you've missed the whole point. Of this series, you've missed the whole point of the book of Mark. You've missed the whole point of the revelation of who Jesus is. Finally, Jesus says, you can serve the poor whenever you want, but I am only with you in the flesh right now. And basically what he's saying is, now is the time to respond like this to me. And it's the same thing for you and for me now. Now's the time, not tomorrow, not next week. Not let me catch a few more Sundays? Now. Jesus is calling you to follow him. Then follow him now. If Jesus is calling you to break the flask and stop living this version of Christianity, just pouring it out and owning your own life, then now's the time to do that and to surrender to him. And so here's what I want us to do. I want you to stand up, and I want you to get ready just to respond to the Lord. As the band comes and as we kind of interact with Jesus now, that you would say to him, what are you saying to me? And how can I respond appropriately to you? There'll be people down front. If you need to pray, you can use the altar. A great way to release everything to the Lord is to get on your knees in humility and just say, yes, it's yours. A great way to do that is to publicly do it in front of people. And just to say, I'm, I'm breaking the flask this morning. It's yours. It's yours. I'm, I'm tired of religion in moderation. And so whatever it is, it ought to be extreme. And so respond to him this morning. I'm going to pray. And then we're just going to sing and leave some space for that. But please don't go through the motions. Use the altar. Pray with a friend. Just respond. Get on your knees. Whatever it is, just respond to him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you revealed yourself in Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for the grace that you've given us, that you got what we deserve so we can get what you deserve. Thank you for taking on our sin and our punishment. Thank you for being troubled so we could have peace. Thank you for being hurt so we could be healed. I pray, Lord, that that truth would sink so deep and now as your people that we would respond appropriately to you, Lord. Just kill like people pleasing, caring about what people think, Lord. Fear of man, God. I just pray that we would respond rightly to you that we would break our flask and surrender it all. So work in this place now. We are submitted to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.